Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 387 featuring Bob Bacon. He is an animation studio executive producer and also the one of the founders of Virtue Animation. And I think it was really, really fascinating conversation. I actually uh, met Bob uh, at uh, NFTLA, which we'll get into a little bit uh, later. Uh, but he is definitely someone with a ton of experience in animation uh, and, an ex uh, and on the executive side uh, and has done a, worked on some pretty big, big, big projects and big animations for for. 30 plus years uh, and is really, really fascinating. And it's very interesting to hear Bob talk about uh, how he's taking all of that knowledge and uh, applying it towards a new kind of animation studio, which is his uh, virtue animation and how he's turning around uh, a Web3 focus on that in that area. So really, really interesting. Very, very cool. Kristen, what do you think of Bob Bacon? Yeah, well, this... Bob, he just packed this with like so much information. Um, one, he's worked at Disney, um, Miramax, Paramount, to now, as you said, founder of Virtu Animation Studios. Um, and he just kind of has a good, a unique understanding of animation production. And he's helped artists and filmmakers um, just kind of bring their vision from concept to market and just helping produce over like 20 like award-winning films from Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Nomeo and Juliet to SpongeBob SquarePants movie which you guys talk about that one a little bit and that's mm -hmm. cool to hear about um and then you also discuss the web3 world and creating films within that um and his company uh virtue animation favors community over committees so the talent kind of has more power over the concept um design and content so it's it's very very interesting to listen to yeah, definitely. I definitely feel like I, I feel very lucky that I that I met him and I had the opportunity to to to, to pick his brain about this stuff and uh, obviously share this with you guys. So it's a very very soft spoken person as well, which I was also really cool and just really really nice guy. Uh, okay, we've got a couple of announcements. I think we've mentioned this before, uh, but you can check it out at chaos.com. Uh, V-Ray 6 for 3DS Max is out, and I know you might be asking yourself, uh, when are they going to be out for Maya and Houdini and Rhino and SketchUp? Don't worry, all those betas are rolling out, uh, and eventually they will all turn into products, uh, probably sooner rather than later. Uh, but uh, V-Ray 6 is full of new features, including uh, Chaos Scatter, Geometry Patterns, uh, uh, new uh, procedural class systems. Uh, there's also uh, V-Ray decal, uh, and you can now do displacements with them. There's also uh, a new proxy. Uh, the proxy objects now have a hierarchy system, which is very, very useful. Uh, and yeah, so really cool. Uh, go check it out at chaos.com. All right, we have a special event coming up in September, which is not far from now. Kristen, what's going on? All right, 24 Hours of Chaos is back. It's going to be September 8th and 9th. It is 24 hours um, and a series of 12 back-to-back -back shows all online. And we unite 3D artists and designers all around the world who are working in ArcViz, VFX, animation, gaming, and product design. So it's really fun. This will be our third year doing it. Um, and you can find out more about this event at chaos.com slash events. It's free um, and really fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. This is our this is our third time, right? This is our third mm -hmm. time doing it. Uh, I we started this during uh, the pandemic as uh, something uh, to do. I didn't know if it was really going to work, but it's not only did it work. It is a lot of fun. There's a lot of people who actually stay up all 24 hours, which is totally crazy. Uh, but they're a great, great show. Uh, yes, we are going to be the LA show that's going to be on September 8th. Uh, but go go check it out, uh, chaos.com/events, and find out more about 24 hours of chaos.
All right. Now, if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash cggarage or chaos.com slash cggarage. <laughs> or if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. Perfect. And if you guys have any ideas uh, of podcasts or you'll have any questions about them uh, or suggestions of, of people that you'd like to have on, uh, please let us know. Our email is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 387 with Bob Bacon. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Well, Bob, I'm very excited to have you on because I think you're going to offer people a very unique perspective on on what uh, you know your 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 take on how animation works and where it's done since you've had all, so much experience in this area. Uh, and I'm very very excited to do this. When I met you over at NFTLA, I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff to discuss with him. So I'm glad I have a little bit more time on this podcast to get through it. But I think just to give people a perspective of what this is, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into animation and what sort of inspired that 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 transition into that area. Wow, that's um, uh, really kind of a, a luck, I would say. I attribute it to you almost, Chris. I've been now in animation for over 30 years. Uh, so believe it or not, um, back when I got into it, I started with Disney feature animation at a really amazing time. Uh, I would call it like the golden age of, of the 1990s. Uh, I, I joined the company when we were making Beauty and the right. Beast uh, in 1991. Uh, and the way I got into it was actually, I, I was, um, I got my degree in finance and I was working for a defense company. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wasn't very exciting and the cold war was ending. Uh, the business was drying up and I had actually, um, I'm a, I'm a San Fernando Valley native. I've grown up here my, my entire life. So entertainment was always in my mm -hmm. backyard and I decided to make a career change and apply to Walt Disney company. And I got in, um, I started on the business side, uh, learning the business operations of Disney before I started to move up and around, uh, within. Okay, so 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 business was your 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 goal into it, but what was it? What did you have an appeal for for movies and animation back then, or did you say Disney sounds just like a cool place for that? It really was that. I mean, I could lie and tell you that that was the case, but I grew up with Saturday morning cartoons, and that's what mm -hmm. I knew. Um, so to me, it was really cool. It was you know obviously a great company. Um, they had offered me a couple different positions. I think the other one might have been in consumer products. And I thought, hey, animation sounds really cool. I should go there. Um, when I walked in the doors, it was amazing because um, it wasn't Saturday morning cartoons. It was something really at the highest level uh, in the world at that time. Uh, and I was blown away uh, and became a convert and made it my career. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, especially in the 90s, I mean, that's the, 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 the moment where things really changed, right? Because there was the the lower quality stuff, the stuff that you would have for signing out cartoons, you know, basically the uh, the Hanna-Barbera ages, it was, and then all of a sudden you had Beauty and the Beast, which was such a different level of animation, right? 
It was. It was. Actually, you know, it was a really interesting time. Michael Eisner was running Disney at the time. Uh, he brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg over from Paramount and a couple guys who ran animation, Peter Schneider and Thomas Schumacher, who came from the Broadway uh, stage play uh, background. So they brought um, that sort of quality into Disney animation at the time, um, these sort of Broadway style animation musicals, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, et cetera. Uh, and it was, really was a, a revolutionary point, you know, for the studio and the industry. Yeah. And you were you were at Disney for quite a while, right? So tell us a little bit about that career path you had at Disney. Yeah, really interesting. I was there for 15 years. Uh, like I said, starting in 91 through 2006. Uh, my career path was such that, um, you know, the, the, the short story, I guess, was that, um, like I said, we entered a golden age. It was a little bit unexpected. Uh, Beauty and the Beast was a surprise hit, followed by Aladdin, The Lion King. Uh, was a billion dollar, you know, property at the time that um, may be more commonplace today, but certainly then that was a huge, huge kind of number to hit. Um, and it started a revolution within the industry, um, meaning that suddenly people saw animation as a business uh, to profit from uh, and competition came in. So, you know, when I started at Disney, really, they were the only studio that was producing feature length uh, quality animation, you know, that had any kind of commercial success. Um, and in the mid nineties, after Jeffrey Katzenberg left, uh, he started DreamWorks animation, Warner brothers started their outfit, Fox started theirs. And suddenly the industry really changed. Um, and it's really when my career started to change as well. Uh, so competition entered prices went up, things became very competitive. Um, and suddenly, you know, there was almost like a war going on in animation in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties. It really caused us to rethink how we looked at our business, um, how we approached it from every different angle. And ultimately um, I was a part of the executive team that ended up also leading the change at Disney animation from hand-drawn to CG, uh, which was quite, you know, quite a big change. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Toy Story came out in 95. So that was right during your time there. So what, what was the reaction at Disney with, with with something like Toy Story and how does how did how did uh, you know Disney react to those types of things? Obviously, Disney was involved since they distributed it, right? So, correct. Yeah, you know, listen. There's there's a lot of books that have been written and, and a lot of people have opinions, but I did live mm -hmm. through all of it. Um, Pixar in the beginning when I got there, um, they were really a technical outfit for us. Um, they were helping us create the digital ink and paint system that came known as Caps uh, Academy Award-winning system. Um, and they provided us RenderMan software, uh, and um, they had a little, you know, a little thing going up there uh, in Northern California. Um, we really helped support them a lot, you know, sort of uh, from an executive level, uh, and and let them be their own thing uh, because they really truly were onto something unique. Um, I can tell you the first time they screened the first uh, uh, sequence of Toy Story. Uh, for us, it was the little green uh, army man mm -hmm. sequence, you know, with the molded. Um, we had never seen CG animation before, so everybody was blown away. Um, you thought that it was revolutionary, uh, that you could do things that we couldn't do in 2D animation in some ways. And there were a lot of limitations, too, to what you could do in CG at the time. Um, so it was pretty revolutionary. Um, everybody sat there, 
laughing because it was really funny and entertaining, but also stunned to see, you know, the sea change and to wonder where the industry was going to go from. Yeah. But I mean, Beauty and the Beast had some experience with, with, CG, right? Because the dance sequence was done oh, yeah. as a projection, or I forgot. Like, remind us how that process was done. Well, they, they created a, a CG mm -hmm. ballroom. Uh, that was the main, um, you know, sort of sequence in Beauty and the Beast. But even the CG work had gone back to even I think the Great Mouse Detective in the in the eighties, okay. um, where there was some CG in there as well. So, so we were experimenting quite a bit, but it it really wasn't the thrust of the studio. It was really only to accomplish certain scenes where you wanted to move the camera and you really couldn't do this in a traditional kind of way. Um, and internally there was quite a bit of resistance, you know, to wanting to take more CG into our movies. Um, so yes, we had quite a bit of experience with it. In fact, I think that's where John ultimately left the company because, you know, he, he needed to break out in his own and, and, and push his vision. Yeah. I think, I think that's fascinating. And, and I think that, you know, having been through, you know, the fact that you were there during that time and witnessing those amazing, uh, uh, amazing process of animation that Disney went through, and just the industry in general must have been quite, quite astounding to be part of that. <laughs> it was really incredible. Um, you know, we, like I said, we produced a lot of uh, amazing movies that had, uh, you know, fantastic success from the box office and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, you know, costs were rising, profitability was changing. Uh, there was a lot of pressure you know, on us, um, Disney as a company was also growing. They had taken on ABC cap cities. Uh, so they had doubled in size. Um, and that created also like company, uh, dynamics, I would say, uh, in terms of how we performed and where the studio sat inside of this larger company. Uh, so yes, it was, it was an incredible time. Um, it came to a head, uh, probably in the, uh, I would say later nineties, Uh, to where you know, there was very serious questions about, you know, how we would move forward as a business and whether we could be uh, profitable and continue to make movies. Right. Those were questions that we talked about. I mean, the cost, the, 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 what was the biggest reason for the cost increase? And it was just that there was so much competition. It's possible. Yeah. So like I said, when competition entered the market, I mean, uh, the cost of our movies went up about four times. Wow. Uh, 90% of the cost of our, our movies mm -hmm. are labor. Uh, Now, uh, especially back then, remember, we're, we're working in traditional animation, so there's not a lot of investment in technical equipment and things like that at the time. Uh, still, I would say the vast majority of costs of an animation film are the labor costs. Uh, so when the labor starts, um, uh, you know, becoming um, desired, let's say, and everybody's bidding for the same talent, uh, you could practically name your deal as an artist and, and walk into any wow. studio and find the job you wanted. And we had to respond in kind. Um, so suddenly where we had sort of a competitive advantage of having the best, best artists in the world working at very reasonable rates, um, that didn't exist anymore. Right. And that changed. Right. And I'm, but I'm sure all the other studios must have been suffering from the same thing, right? So they were, they were, they were suffering from the same thing. I think, you know, there's a pretty well-known story of, of DreamWorks really struggling in the early days and, and, you know, um, Shrek being the hit that it was really saved that mm -hmm. studio. I think Fox didn't make it. Warner Brothers really didn't make it. Um, you know, costs were just very competitive to the point where I was greenlighting films that were easily $150 million of direct production cost uh, with another, you know, $50 plus million of production overhead. On top of those, you're talking about a $200 million film that goes out there and has to perform over $500 million at the box office just to break even. And that's a nutty 
kind of equation. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine that's very stressful. So how, how did you, how did you, you know, what, what were some of the ways you did that? Obviously, you know, things, things changed. What was the change that happened at, at, right at that peak moment? Um, you know, in terms of how mm -hmm. we responded, is that what you're saying? Yeah, we, we took a number of different approaches. I mean, um, first you might, you might be surprised, but with all the movies that Disney had made over the years, up until that point, there, there had never really been, um, any kind of mining of the information. Um, so, you know, you have to think of, of movies like this, uh, almost as, um, like a manufacturing process. It's a production process. We work practically three years on a film from start mm -hmm. to finish, not counting development. It involves a number of different processes, departments, people, um, you know, and so there's a lot to learn from that, from movie to movie in terms of just analyzing uh, pencil mileage and inventory and um, speed of artists and things like that. So we really took a deep dive at that point, uh, probably because of my analytical background that I had um, into looking at the efficiency of our business. And we made a lot of efficiency improvements, which helped us um, bring down the cost and still retain the quality that we had always been known for. Um, and then you have to look at the other parts of your business too, that are outside of production, all the overhead and support. And we made some really big, difficult changes. Uh, at one point I managed 750,000 square feet of studios around the world and 2,300 people at Disney Animation. Wow. And after we made our changes, we were down to about 550 people and about a third of that uh, facility wow. space. So it was kind of difficult. Yeah, those are... But we re those, and things are really great. Yeah, those are difficult choices for sure. I'm sure it is. But, you know, that's... that's I, I've I've always sort of had a... a, a, a uh, it's always been hard seeing when you when you have to make choices like that to sort of get through the executives and say it well it's either that or there's nothing <laughs> you know it's very tough it's very tough because you know Disney's a special place um, people had worked there for many many years um, maybe their entire lives uh, and they're all your friends and colleagues and half of them you help bring there and, and trained and supported and when you need to make these these difficult calls, it's 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 like you know really cutting off your right arm. Yeah. Uh, these are your friends and, and colleagues, like I said. So there's no joy in any of it. It's it's, right, it's really tough. Right. Well, for sure. Okay, so uh, so uh, 2016 or 2006, you said you were you were there, right? Yeah. So 2006, that was the acquisition okay. of Pixar. Um, yeah, so basically when Disney acquired Pixar, um, the management team, leadership team of Pixar came in under John and Ed, and I stuck around for a few months and okay. then left. Basically, it was time for new leadership to come in, and I had had my good run and was actually ready to go do something else um, and explore more independent production. Okay, and so where, where, did, you, where did you go? What's, what was the summer, where did you go from there? Well, I ended up, uh, funny enough, on a, a related project called Nomeo and Juliet. Oh, right. uh, so Nomeo and Juliet was a project that Elton John and Rocket Pictures, his production company, brought to Disney following the success of Lion King and Aida on the stage play side. Um, and we set it up uh, at Disney Features. But when John came in, it was moved over to Miramax. Um, and Miramax, as you know, is pretty much a, an art house live action studio. So they didn't really have any experience in animation. They asked me to come over after I left Disney to be the production executive on the mm -hmm. film. 
and help make it um, with that team, which was really, really fun and probably the most enjoyable project I've ever worked on um, under the leadership of the late Kelly Asbury, who passed away a couple of years ago. Kelly was the co-director of Shrek 2 and many other films and, and was an incredible guy. Um, we set the movie up creatively in London, uh, you know, proximity to Elton and team. And then we produced it actually in Toronto uh, and hired a third party studio that was named Stars at the time uh, to produce it. And we produced it for about half the cost that we were used to at Disney. Wow. Um, so it was really, um, this was one of the things that I was pioneering at the time was independent animation, feeling like costs were a bit out of control. Um, CG was really coming on at that time. Uh, the capabilities were spreading around the world. Um, and it seemed to me that there was a, a, an opportunity to break out of the sort of, you know, vertical system of Disney and to do things more in an independent fashion, high quality, and still bring the cost down and have an enjoyable movie. We did really well. The movie did $200 million approximately at the box office um, and gathered a lot of attention. So that was really fun. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, well, I'm, I'm very excited. And, and obviously, I, I want to talk to you uh, a lot more about independent animation because I think that's a fascinating field and it's becoming a, a resurgence now in that area. So I'm very excited about it. But I mean, building, having come from Disney, you know, which is very well established in animation, what what was it like, you know, uh, at Miramax sort of building the studio from the ground up with all the knowledge you had and about efficiency and everything else? It must have been quite amazing. Uh, yeah, it's it's such a different thing. I mean, I think the first thing you realize is is there's not a specialist for mm -hmm. everything. Um, and, you know, you have to bootstrap a lot of things working independently. Um, I would say almost a better example, Chris, if you can jump ahead, is I, I, I moved on from Miramax to go work at mm -hmm. Paramount uh, Pictures. And I started their animation um, division there. So when I walked in, it was a, a desk and a phone that I was given. Uh, and yeah. that was it. Uh, so I came from the incredible Disney, which had hundreds or, or a thousand people working there and, and knew absolutely what to do as soon as you snapped your fingers to a place that really didn't have any clue. Um, and you have to build it from the ground up. It's, it's quite a, it's quite a feat, uh, but really kind of, kind of fascinating, I think, you know, in some ways to try to approach it with a blank slate and that was very exciting yeah so so what what is what were what were some of the first decisions that you had to make at, at paramount when you you know okay i've got a desk i gotta start making some phone calls right <laughs> yeah i think i think the first big strategic decision was that we weren't going to build a vertical okay. studio so um we didn't want to have um the, let's say uh, our focus was to um, really um, bring in all the people on the front end of, of the process. And what I mean by that is probably everything up until about layout in the CG process. Um, so we would um, ideate, script, conceive all the projects, um, you know, develop all of those uh, in green light, um, and then go into story, editing, design, and essentially shape the foundation of the movie with the best people here. Um, and then our approach was to hire a studio that would produce the work and then we would bring it back and post it, uh, you know, here back at Paramount in LA. Um, in this way, we created a lot of flexibility in our production pipeline. We didn't have the commitment to cost and overhead. Um, we could be a lot more uh, specific about the studios that we wanted to work with based on the creative that we mm -hmm. were producing, uh, for example, um, and like I said, I, I was no longer in the position of having to, I call feed right. the beast, uh, which is, you know, um, 
all these mouths that are looking for work. And I think the biggest thing I learned from Disney is the most important part of this entire process is really this creative process. It's the process of development and really shaping a story um, so that when you approach production, you can do that fairly efficiently. Um, Everybody will tell you, and they're right, uh, that you don't want to really change a movie in the course of production. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we actually do that all the time. And it's just about the degrees to which you do that. Um, So um, having a big attendant overhead, like a studio with all these mouths to feed that are waiting for work, somewhat impedes your ability sometimes to shape the movie creatively. It becomes, it becomes a tail that's wagging the dog. Right. Um, and these were things that I saw at Disney. These were some of the choices that I didn't want to face anymore. So, for example, if we were making a movie at Disney, we would typically have a movie in full production. We would have another movie that was finishing production, and we'd have another movie that was starting production. They were all stacked on top of each other. And if we pulled the strings on the movie that was you know, sort of in production – it would start to topple all the dominoes for the other films that depended on them because crews wall from film to film and so forth. Um, and, um, you know, if you had a, a good idea or if you put your movie up, as we used to say, we'd screen it and it wasn't working or we wanted to make some changes, you'd like to have the ability to do that because you actually can in animation. That's one of the great things right. about it. Um, but there's a cost to that and there's a time cost to that too. Uh, and if you have a lot of people waiting there, you're, you're generally rushing. So I would say you have like three bad choices when that happens. It's you either let everybody sit in downtime and it's kind of costly and demoralizing, or you have to let people go. We just talked about that. That's mm-hmm. even worse. Um, or I say you pour the wine before it's time, which is you rush the story and just try to make it and get the movie out. And a lot of people do that. So if you pull yourself back from that and say like, well, how do I not put pressure on the creative process? Um, a lot of that is the studio that you build up around it and the overhead uh, and dollar pressure that you put on these movies. So if you alleviate that, then there is no pressure per right. se uh, of that kind of financial pressure and you can take more time to store. Yeah. So that's a strategic decision how you might set up a studio. Right, right. Well, that makes sense. What was, so what was the big first project that you did at Paramount? Yeah, so the first big project was the SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water. Um, Paramount's part of the Viacom family. You know, things have changed a bit in the last few years after I left. Um, uh, But still, you know, um, Nickelodeon is a sister company to Paramount. Uh, SpongeBob was the biggest property in Nickelodeon's history. Um, And uh, they had previously made a film uh, that did all right. um, And we were asked to do another one. So it was really great uh, for me and for the studio because it was a well-known established property that we could go produce and get ourselves going right away and start to, um, you know, as we were producing that movie, start to build the crew and start to develop all the other projects behind it. Um, I don't know if you ever got to see the I film, did. but it, it's, it's one of the most, I think, multimedia features that's out there. You know, we had hand-drawn animation and CG animation and live action and stop motion animation and, uh, and a couple others, I think. Um, and we hired a lot of different, you know, um, studios and artists to help us out with that. So again, if I was at Disney and we were a hand-drawn studio, we just wouldn't make a CG film because our production pipeline wouldn't support it. If we had converted over to CG, we wouldn't make a hand-drawn film anymore because our pipeline wouldn't support it. 
Um, and I felt like what you really want to do is you want to go to creative people and you want to liberate their ideas. You don't want to have them like feel these walls around them right away of like, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. So it was much better to approach creatives and say, hey, what do you want to do? And how do we make that happen? Right. Because we have no limitations. We also didn't want to have a, a brand limitation too. It was one of the things that I wanted to push on, which was, um, as you know, animation is a is is not necessarily a genre by itself, but it's a means of expression, I think. Um, and you know, for better or for worse, a lot of animated projects here in the states are very family oriented, which is nice. Um, but it really limits what you can do in animation. And I think Disney has a brand, Pixar has a brand. Disney's just run up into some brand issues recently, you know, with the Lightyear movie, right? Um, we wouldn't have had to face those necessarily at Paramount because we wouldn't have a brand, let's say, that, that's boxing us into this type of film. I would consider R-rated movies. I would consider pretty much anything that somebody would bring mm-hmm. to me if it made sense for us, creatively and financially. I think that's that, well, I actually was going to talk to you about that because the animation is sort of having this this a little bit of a renaissance more recently and especially in the streaming networks, et cetera, where they're looking yeah. at uh, uh, more mature content uh, that is very appealing and very interesting and very creative in a lot of ways and, and, and something that I think is more nuanced is, is very interesting as well. I mean, what are your thoughts about things like Love, Death, and Robots and all those other things? Uh, I think it's incredible. Look, I know you've had Tim on the show many yeah. times, um, and I've gotten to know him over the years. He, he's an amazing guy. Um, I had the chance to talk to him years ago, you know, when I was at mm-hmm. Paramount, even before he had Deadpool. Um, we were talking about these things, but, you know, again, this was pre-Netflix. It was pre-streaming. I tried to do these things, uh, you know, in the places that I used to be. There is no outlet for a 22-minute show or a 17 minute thing, a featurette, whatever right. you want to call it, a short. Um, streaming was a great distribution uh, uh, platform that created opportunity again creatively because no longer did you have to meet a specific sort of, you know, guideline of having a movie that was, you know, 90 minutes or so and it has to go out theatrically, has to speak to a certain audience. Um, you know, Netflix has more of a, a like a Disneyland approach. You pay a, a gate a gate ticket, and once you're inside, you can enjoy whatever you want. Um, so that means that they don't really necess- they can find their own audience, you know, within this big park of theirs, if you will. Um, and I find that extremely creative enabling. Um, the kinds of projects that they've put out there, I think, th- third season now. I mean, you can find pretty much any range. Uh, that you're looking for there and and the kinds of subject matter too are really pushing the limits of what we've been used to like i said so for me i think it's the best i think it's so great yeah we need more of that yeah i was i was fascinated i listened to 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 alberto miago's uh speech at the oscars and and sort of thinking about what he said and he said this you know like of all the things that were nominated only one of them was you know for kids and this is all animation right so i think that there's some 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 a uh, form of animation now is is going through a revolution in that way and i think that's very exciting um, do you think that anime i'm sort of skipping ahead to so your your thoughts on the on on the industry but i want to get back to what you're also doing as well but uh do you, what do you think about the, the 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 passion for anime that's that's sort of really surging right now in 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 the us 
Yeah, I think it's great. Again, it's it's another, you know, sort of another style. It's been around, but maybe not around here so much. Um, and I think probably, you know, the younger set is is, is really into it, um, which makes it grow. Uh, I find it, you know, really, again, expressive and exciting. So um, there's a bunch of projects that have come my way uh, in anime, all of them to me. There's probably not a one almost that doesn't like visually excite me. Um, you know, the level of storytelling, uh, I think it's great. So more, you know, that's awesome. Do you think that that style is going to influence, uh, American animation in some ways? Oh, sure. I think right. it does. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all, we all see what's being produced and it all has an influence whether, you know, directly or maybe indirectly down the road. But, um, I would expect it that, I would expect that you'll see some big productions that will, you know, explore the style for sure. Right, 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 right. Okay, so uh, we'll go back to, to to Paramount and SpongeBob. And so you were you were you were at uh, Paramount for for how long were you there? Uh, about okay. four years. Just over four years. Okay. Uh, and uh, what uh, what other pro- uh, what did where did you go from there? What were some of the transitions you had from there? Uh, yeah, after Paramount, um, I I, I, re- I greenlit. Six films, I think five that made that were made when I was at okay, Paramount. Right. After I left, um, um, I worked for a company called Alpha. Alpha. So uh, the Alpha Group, uh, we is a big Chinese uh, consumer products company, okay. um, and they had uh, um, quite a bit of effort, you know, over in the Chinese market in the Far East market. Um, they were not a global company; they decided to expand globally. And wanted to create animation, feature animation for the global market. So they hired me as CEO to set up Alpha Animation uh, in mm-hmm. LA. I built a studio out there that's about 20,000 square feet, really state of the right. art. Um, we developed uh, about six projects, I guess, um, in a little over a year that wow. I was there. And then the climate really changed, you know, sort of um, on many levels, politically and so forth. And uh, the Chinese started to pull out their investment. And ultimately, they they pulled our investment from us, which is why I ended up leaving, and we shut down Alpha Animation. I sold the studio and uh, the projects to Skydance Animation. Okay, and that's so Skydance uh, actually, I think, uh, still is in the building that that I built in in LA, and, and those projects. Are oh, I didn't realize that Skydance was came came from the from what you guys had built on Alpha. That's interesting. Uh, not not fully, but I mean, you know, there's there's a piece that that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting, and Lassiter yeah. is holding up a lot of the creatives there right now, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. When we made uh, when we made the deal, Bill Damaski, who formerly ran um, DreamWorks Animation under Jeffrey, was leading it. Okay, okay, all right. So I think this sort of catches us up to around the time that that w- that uh, you and I met at NFTLA, where you started to get into doing some pretty interesting stuff. So tell us a little bit more about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so I'm the co-founder and CEO of Virtue Animation Studios. We're a Web three producer of animation content. Right. Um, uh, we missed a little bit of the story, but I after Alpha, I, I went to go work for um, Granity Studios and Kobe mm-hmm. Bryant. So uh, um, Kobe had brought me in after his success with Dear Basketball uh, to build a 2D uh, traditional animation studio for him. He was, he was really um, very enamored with the 2D process, the very traditional process 
Um, and we were looking to recreate sort of old Disney in some ways, um, you know, sort of uh, before his tragic death. Um, around that time, I, I met the current partners uh, that I'm working with now in Virtue. And we were very inspired, you know, following his death. Um, all of us come from a, a background of sports, a love of sports, um, and also animation. Um, so we, we really were inspired by, by Kobe um, to go out there and try to do something, as we said, virtuous mm-hmm. uh, for the world. Um, we wanted to go produce animation content, um, uh, Web3, NFTs, things like that were just a bit of a gleam in my eye. Uh, when we first started about two years ago. And um, quickly it became uh, something that really, I thought, was quite revolutionary. Uh, with blockchain technology, the um, sort of capabilities that it could create and how it might, again, upend how we produce animation. So, you know, you can see that I've been on a long journey of going from sort of, you know, the highest level of animation with the best people in the world at a very high cost to continue to explore how we produce animation, but in different methods at different price points with different people. And this seemed to be another great opportunity to do that. So we formed Virtue um, and we started um, really learning a lot, um, doing some client-based work. Um, We work for a company called Player Edition uh, that's working with some NBA folks um, and bringing sort of Web3 to professional athletes. Um, so we did a really cool trailer for them that features uh, Steph Curry and Russell Westbrook. Um, and then we've also worked for another company called Outlaw um, that's also um, doing some really cool stuff in Web3 uh, where we're, we provide sort of the creative engine for both of those companies where we've um, provided the animation, the design, the storytelling, sort of the, the world uh, building for them. Um, and that gave us a lot of uh, confidence and also some time figure out what we wanted to do. Um, so um, I think around the time I met you, um, we were launching our own project, mm-hmm. Super Friends, which we're into right now. Um, and um, it is a Web3 based project and we're trying to approach it, you know, sort of in all the fashions, I guess, that, that people are exploring today, um, building community, uh, working through an NFT process, the idea of token gating and creating utility, and those types of things. Right, so so let's talk a little bit about that that finance the differencing and the differences in a, in a Web three studio versus a traditional studio and how you get your finances and how you do that. So, what's your what you know what how do you how do you see that? I mean, obviously, before you had to secure all this this funding to be able to make the production. Now you're sort of approaching the fans first before you even do that. Is that sort of the what your uh, how how you feel this is going to work? <laughs> I think so. I mean, listen, um, I'm not going to say no anything uh, because we're all figuring it out. But um, what I saw was that uh, when I came into it, um, it was, you know, PFPs. And I I felt like, wow, really cool. And some of the stuff is is pretty, pretty awesome. Um, But it felt a little um, shallow to me in the sense that there wasn't much behind it. Uh, We come from the world of storytelling. And so when I saw these things, I felt like, look at my entire career has been spent with the best artists in the world, creating worlds, telling story, building characters, and creating emotional, you know, sort of connections to our audience. Um, and I thought, like, that's the same thing that we can do here in Web3. It's not being done uh, at the time. I think more and more it's being done now. Uh, but to look at it as not just a pretty picture, but like a full entertainment product, um, just like animation would be. 
But like you said, instead of having to secure all the funding and uh, spend you know tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to put out a product, wait four years, cross your fingers, throw it over the fence, and hope somebody likes yeah. it, um, we get to actually like put product out right away um, in a very sort of base form, let's say, um, and start to create connection with our audience and start to get feedback right away. And we even think that we would like to have them participate in the process, which is really different too. Um, so uh, these are the things that we're exploring right now. Um, I like to say that if we had never seen Star Wars, but somebody had introduced you to you know, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker um, with the scroll of In a Galaxy Far, Far Away, um, you might be hooked at that point. You, you should look at them and say, one's a villain and one's a hero, and I'd like to know more. Um, and if we started introducing you to Han Solo and Princess Leia and the rest of the cast and the worlds, you might start to grow with this project as well. Um, and you'd be able to put it out there in this kind of way, like starting with characters and their character story, almost like a comic book rolls out, right? right? Um, and start to hook your audience in that kind of way. But in addition to that, not only are you telling them a fun story and you're creating characters and this kind of engagement, but there's a way to take all the best of gaming and, and fun and puzzles and riddles and challenges and rewards and bring that in too. Um, and that's a fuller world to me. So, you know, how we create success um, and profitability ultimately and industry around it, you know, like we have in, in traditional media, um, I still think that remains to be seen. Um, but I think it's going to be done. And um, it's going to be approached in this kind of like, you know, inverse pyramid fashion that I like to think of instead of, like I said, you know, the full investment. Yeah, I think that's interesting, and you know, some of, one of the things that was resonating a lot at the, at NFTLA and some even on on the panel that I that I saw you on was sort of the idea of of the the, the middleman not longer no longer making decisions and going directly to the fan base to sort of uh, uh, help that happen. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that on the on sort of the elimination of the middleman deciding what the audience is actually going to like versus just asking them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, again, you know, uh, money plays such a big role in these things. Uh, so companies are risk averse. And um, I, I like to say in Hollywood, everybody has the break, but very few people have the gas pedal. Um, so you hear a lot of no's and you very, very hear very, very few yeses. Um, and it seems everybody has the chance to say no. I have sat on that side of the table, and it's a very subjective thing, I will admit. Um, you know, it comes down to some of my taste and preferences and, and things that I feel like I can sell within a company. Um, so you become a gatekeeper um, and Hollywood's full of gatekeepers. Um, and I don't think the model is necessarily a great model for creatives, because if I am the creative, especially if I'm not established, let's say, um, I, I give away everything to get my opportunity right. and the studio takes everything. Um, and yet I was the one who created it came out of my head. Uh, and so a lot of that is because of money and distribution. I don't have the financing. I don't have the distribution to reach my audience. So what other choice do I really have? Um, but if we can offer people another choice, then maybe they can reach their audiences more directly and start to see more of the benefit for themselves and keep more of their creative content in line with you know what they want. It's not uncommon at all for us to buy ideas from creators and to never have those creators finish out those projects. It's actually more common than not. Um, and it's a bit of a shame. So I felt like from all those reasons in terms of, you know, sort of 
um, creative control, financial participation, um, the ability to speak directly with your audience. There's a bit of a broken model in Hollywood. Um, and when you see things that are broken, you feel like there's an opportunity to fix them. That creates opportunity. So, um, so we'll see. You know, I think um, if artists ultimately can reach their audiences more successfully, if they can find this kind of profitability, maybe they will then just skip, you know, the studio line, if you will, and um, and we'll see a change. It remains to be seen, Chris. I think um, you know, scale is a really important thing, and everybody is concerned that once the big players get into it, that it'll just push all the little guys out. Yeah, that that actually came up a little bit uh, at the conference. I remember, you know, obviously the day before you you gave your talk, I think Warner Brothers announced they're going to give out 200,000 NFTs on, on uh, Batman cows. Um, and the, there seems to be a mixed, mostly negative reaction from a lot of NFT people. It's like, well, how dare Warner Brothers get into our space, the independent filmmakers and the people who have our ideas who are trying to go around the Hollywood system. What are your thoughts on that, on that, on that philosophy or that, 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 that thought process about that? Yeah, I think I think I think you know, sort of the 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 ethos, if you will, inside of Web three is a very kind of you know independent uh, philosophy of a bit going against the grain, you know, establishment things like that. We want we want to be decentralized, and you know, we want to we want to be able to make our own decisions. Um, so I think whenever you know, sort of the man enters you know the arena, it's a bit of a you know a pushback because okay. Here comes the very player that we're trying to push against, right. you know. Um, and yet we all can succumb to the resources that these places can provide. That's what I'm saying is, you know, ultimately you want to do your thing. And if you find that there are means to an end, you might you might go that way. So it's a bit of a bummer. I think, you know, from what I've seen working at Disney, especially is, you know, in these big companies, they're, they're like big tanker ships and they, they take a long time to turn. Mm -hmm. And like I said, there's a lot of people you have to line up. So it, it can take a while, um, but once they're moving, there's a ton of momentum. It's like a locomotive, very, very difficult to stop. Um, and I think, you know, you can look at us as like little, like, you know, little like speedboats mm -hmm. and moving a lot faster and turning a lot sharper and able to get out there a lot quicker. Um, the question is, you know, if we maneuver quick enough and, and try not to go down a traditional path, I think that that's going to be the mistake. We'll have to cook up something a little bit different. Uh, in order for us to make our own inroads, you know, um, and if we could do that before the big guys do it, then you may be able to sort of entrench yourself enough or enough people, you know, will be the Instagrams of the world or, you know, those types of things that then maybe they get gobbled up by the bigger companies, but they're the ones that are paid in the past. Right. Right. I think that's very, very interesting. Uh, I also think, you know, I, I've been I've been a fan of, of independent animation and uh, for a long time. And um, I actually just recently did uh, a podcast with Bill Plimpton. I don't know if you know who Bill, uh, but uh, yeah. so and so I'm just thinking about like this isn't there's opportunities now for creative things. And so so much more directly. I mean, he was talking about, you know, individually selling DVDs at, at, at card tables. You know, that's how he's, he stayed independent. Yeah. And now through NFTs, I think that there's ways that people can can serve, uh, can can approach their fans so much better and in, in such a cleaner way. I think that's really, really great. Yeah, that's right. That's funny you mentioned, Bill, because uh, one of my partners, Mark Levine, um, back in the, in the day, worked for the Spike and Mike. 
uh, Sick and Twisted Festival. And this was, there's quite a bit of um, very, very high level talent in the industry today that started there. And just like you said, it was their, their chance to like show their wares in a very crude way and get noticed. Um, and I think, again, you know, if we don't have to spend millions of dollars to get noticed, um, there may be a way to spark something very quickly that turns into a raging forest fire. Um, and, and that's a little bit of development too, right? Is that you, you, you put things out there, some of them win, some of them lose, and some of them really take off. So if we could place more bets around the table, I think that would be right. good. I think if we explore more people, you know, coming from different parts of the world, different walks of life, um, different ideas, different modes of expression, and we can enable that, that, that should be good too. Um, I think people get bored of seeing the same thing over and over. Yeah. I, I, I hope so because I'm seeing the same thing a lot these days. And I'm a little bored. I, mean, I have to be honest with you. You know, there's not a lot right now that's getting me excited. But some of the things that you talked about earlier, like anime and, and those types of things, are, are much more exciting to me than, than sort of what's I'm seeing you know, on the big screen. Yeah, I think that's something that's really been a division, right? I mean, the big screen now seems to be only be things that are sure bets, right? So, uh, so it's going to be superhero films or ser- series or uh, you know stuff stuff like uh, like that. So, scary movies are definitely going to be on the on the big screen, but you're not going to get some of the risks that are going on. I think streaming is this very interesting thing because it's definitely taking more risks in terms of the stuff that is showing. But do you think that now, you know, with, with web three, that's like the next thing past streaming, that's going to sort of really enable people to find their niche audience. I think so. I just think it might take some Mm -hmm. time. Uh, I think, you know, a conversation I had the other day with somebody was, is it web three or is it, sort of what he was saying, like Web360, uh, meaning that, you know, you may have these traditional media projects that take a, a Web3 arm to them. And, and that's, you know, that's how they round out their, their Web3 Got approach. It. Let's say you may have some, let's say, Web3 projects that start as Web3 projects that end up as big traditional media projects because you know, they find their way to these studios. Um, I think both things will happen. Uh, I think that right now the overall community in Web3 is still pretty small when you, when you look at the numbers compared to you know, traditional media. And um, some of the valuations that we've seen have helped prop up you know, this industry to date, and that's been sucked out you know, in the last weeks, months. So um, I actually think it's a good thing um, because it's much like what I saw happen with the, you know, the dot-com back in the day just over 20 years ago, uh, it was a big shakeout. Um, anybody who had a domain name basically had a, you know, a multi-million dollar business. Um, and yet the internet didn't go away. Right. right. So I think that, you know, people who saw that as an opportunity to find industries and businesses are pretty big players today. Uh, I think the same thing will happen. Ultimately. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you say that because I think, you know, obviously there's so many people you know, I'm, I, I, every time people talk about you know th- this current crypto winter that we're dealing with at this uh, at this moment, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, this is all going to go away. It's all done. And it's like, you know, there was an article in like 2002 that came out in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal says this internet thing is going away and no one's interested in it anymore. It's like that clearly did not happen, <laughs> right? Yeah, it didn't happen. I don't think it's going to happen here either because we have very fundamental sort of you know things at work. Um, the idea of smart contracts, the idea of you know distribution, 
uh, the idea of the ability to reward people. These are powerful things. This is this is a powerful highway that things will be placed on. You know, crypto was placed on it. NFTs were placed on it. There's a lot of things that you can place on the blockchain highway. Um, I think NFTs proved it on some level. Um, they're just overvalued. And by the way, there's a very good article that came out recently that was saying, despite the crypto winter that's going on, that there's quite a bit of trading volume still in mm-hmm. NFTs. It's actually uh, been very strong. And there's a lot of VC investment that's still going on in NFTs. Uh, like us at Virtue, you know, we've, we've sort of got our head down right now and we're building. Uh, we don't plan to give up or, or go anywhere. We're using this as an opportunity to, you know, to build our projects and to learn more and to get ourselves out there ultimately. So um, I don't think it's going away. I just think that, you know, the, the crazy money got sucked out right. of it. And now you're going to see the real players trying to really make headway, you know, in this business and figure it out. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I'm, I've been actually, you know, thinking this is probably the right correction that needs to take place so that some of those things can can happen because there were things that was like that just doesn't make any sense that that is valued at that much, you know, whatever. So having this correction really helps sort of put things into perspective. But ultimately, one of the right. things that I thought was really great when I went to NFTLA was the passion for creative creativity. It wasn't necessarily about people trying to, most of the people were not there trying to say, I'm going to make a bunch of money. It's more like I can finally do the things I've always wanted to do. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. And, and a lot of times, you know, when you've heard those success stories of people in, in life, you know, it's, that's where they started. They, they did the thing that they love. They had the opportunity to do it and it grew into something that maybe they couldn't even have imagined at the time. Um, and this is what I like about, this is what I'm saying is, is can we, you know, let's lower the barriers to entry for creative people to express themselves, to put things out there for the world to enjoy. It's a shame that we have to step over such a high hurdle. Uh, I've been part of that. That's what I'm saying. And I'd like to be on the other side to help bring those hurdles down and to get the, you know, people's work out there and see, you know, and just see, because I'm sure that there's, there's a lot of great stuff and there's amazingly talented people that we just even haven't heard of yet. So let's, let's find them. Let's turn over the different stones. Let's let's give them more opportunity. Um, and again, if we the money part of it is a big part. So if we can bring the investment down, projects can go out. You know, we're 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 creating projects now that cost under a hundred k, let's mm-hmm. say, and we can go to market, uh, and we can do that in a matter of weeks or months. Um, so we don't have to wait four years, and we don't have to spend that kind of capital. And and who has that kind of capital anyhow? Where you have you know, six players. Now, what is enabling that to happen? That is it the technology? Is it the ideas? Is it how? It's, it's the way we. Have, well, it's. Uh, are you talking about the yeah. cost coming down? Yeah, it's the way we approach um, how we're going to put it out there. Like I said, uh, so we're not going to put a full movie out there. We're not writing scripts. We're not building all this stuff in the computers. We're doing sort of the I, I might you know might sound pejorative on some level, but the sort of the minimum amount that you would need to do to start to attract your audience and build your story. So we like to lead with um, story and characters, but do it in kind of a loose fashion. Again, almost like the comic book mm-hmm. does. Uh, if you pick up a comic book, you'll start to read a little bit about the character, typically the situation that they're in. Um, you start to learn more and more. It's doled out to you, you know, over some episodes. Um, and I like that a lot. It means you don't have to figure everything out from day one and you can start playing with it. And that brings the cost way, way down. 
if you then um, are able to put it out there and, and monetize that in some way through, let's say, like an NFT or mint process um, that's focused around some utility gaming, you know, tokenization, um, then you start to bring in revenue right away. Um, and having revenue is a great thing because now you have more cash basically on hand to go produce more content. Um, and I think that's a more organic way to go. It's certainly a less risky way to go. And we want to de-risk the process because I'm telling you, that's why a lot of people won't take new ideas is because there's too much financial risk. In right. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think you know they they have they they feel that they have to do this one thing because they they know that that's going to work, so they just keep redoing it over and over again, and they don't try anything new. Right, and then look at it the other way. Um, we've seen plenty of things flop, sure. right? And you spent a lot of money and it didn't work. Um, and this way again, if if you put something out there and it it doesn't really get traction, you're not really finding the audience. They're not really caring about it. Cut your losses, and you know you're probably out for not too much. Um, and, um, you know, you try it again. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we're, uh, I, I have another podcast that I do called Martini Giant and, and it's, it's uh, me and a couple of my buddies and we're, we're big, we're big cinephiles and we love talking about movies and we're just like, it's like, I can't believe it's been 40 years and we're still talking about Star Wars. I mean, I love the movie when it came out, but let's, we're, I'm depriving my kids from, for, for, for them having their own creative ideas and their new, new things that are great. Because uh, because we're still force feeding our childhood onto onto our kids, and it's just a little sad, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's an interesting way to put it. You're right. Uh, well, again, it's it's the risk averse right. thing. It's the thing that you know. And I think that what you're doing is a great, great way of doing it. It's like, let's, let, let's find a way to minimize the risk and get some fresh ideas out there as as, as quickly as possible. So, I think that's a really a really wonderful yeah. wonderful thing that you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Uh, right now, we we, do, we we have a very positive like sort of development process. Uh, we're not working in like a financial deficit, yep. uh, which is good. So most most development processes are, are since money losers. You know, you're, you're placing some bets and hoping that one pays off. But um, you know, typically you write off a lot of stuff that doesn't work. Right. So so in this way, you know, uh, we actually have a a, a plus development process which is awesome that's amazing that is absolutely amazing so i think that's that's absolutely great uh well listen i don't want to take up too much more of your time we're coming close to an hour and 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 this was really great talking to you um and uh can't wait to see more about what happens at virtue uh and uh we'll put on our podcast page we'll have links to to your to your site and if there's anything that you feel that we should share with our audience uh we can put uh things on our on our podcast page about that as well so uh it's Oh, yeah. wonderful! Yeah, I'd like to do that. When okay. Right. Well, we'll get Kristen. Kristen will uh, will will touch base with you uh, about a week before the podcast comes up, and she can put all those links in there. But it'll be great. But thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate awesome. uh, your time and your amazing insight onto the industry. Uh, for thirty years of animation is quite uh, it's been quite a journey. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your wonderful show. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to my stories. 